Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. One of my favorite sports figures of all time, I have to dig back to get these anymore since my teams are all so bad now, but um, one of my favorite sports figures is Richie Ashburn. Uh, he was the Hall of Fame Phillies center fielder, and of course he was long retired from playing by the time I was even born. Uh, so I was not a fan so much of Ashburn the player. I was a fan of Ashburn the color guy because he was in the booth uh, with Harry Callis critiquing the umpires and the players. And uh, him and Harry had this chemistry in the booth that I don't think has ever been duplicated. But Richie Ashburn told a lot of great stories when he was in the booth. Uh, one of my favorites went kind of like this. He told this story of a time when he was still playing. And he was known for his speed, Richie Ashburn was. And I forget the exact details. He, I forget if he was trying to stretch a double into a triple, something like that. And uh, he's running the bases. He rounds second. The play is at third. And he slides into the bag. And the ball arrives at the same time. So it's a real bang-bang play. And the third base umpire says, safe. But he makes the signal for out. So Richie and the third baseman, they look at the umpire in confusion and say, well, which is it? And the ump says, well... You two know that I said safe, but the thousands of people in the bleachers saw me call you out, so I guess you're out. <laughs> now, that's a classic story and a classic example of not letting your answer be yes or no. Now, I love baseball because there's this human element to it. You know, I don't want the game to be mathematically exact. Uh, umpire discretion is part of the game, just like fighting in hockey, right? You should just leave it alone. One day when they computerize the strike zone, I'll stop watching baseball entirely. Uh, but while human error is, is kind of charming in old baseball stories, nobody likes it in the moment, right? I'm sure that Richie wasn't real happy at the time. You know, a close call at, at, at third base is a low-stakes situation, but it's still a, a perfect picture of, of words and actions not lining up, and we all kind of hate it when people say one thing and do another. Uh, we call this hypocrisy or lying uh, or just being straight up unreliable. We call people that do that often, we call them big talkers. Uh, people who are a lot of talk and not a lot of action to back it up. And it's easy to become that way because as we all know, talk is cheap uh, and we like cheap, especially considering the inflation rates today. Uh, we got to save money somewhere, don't we? Uh, and it's easy to say stuff. It's the follow-through that takes effort. One of my favorite Disney movies is the original Beauty and the Beast, uh, the cartoon one. And, and there's a great scene where the Beast is 
decided he's really falling for Belle, and he says he wants to do something for her, and Cogsworth, the unromantic and detached British butler who happens to be a clock, says, well, there's the usual things, flowers, chocolates, promises you don't intend to keep. And it's a funny line, and we can all relate to that, because even the best of us can get ourselves trapped into making promises that we either have no intention of keeping or have no ability to keep. Uh, sometimes we have great intentions, and we still can't keep our word. So, you know, you'll sign off on a loan, uh, and then you lose your job and you can't make payments, right? Uh, or you tell your kids you're definitely going to be there for them on a certain occasion, and then a work emergency pulls you away. And, or traffic and car troubles can keep you from being on time to important appointments. And, you know, it's, we're just not even in control of the situation a lot of the time. Now, I'll confess up front that I find this entire lesson here of Jesus is a little bit triggering, personally, because I am a consummate people pleaser. I'm kind of like that umpire in Richie Ashburn's story, you know, if you have to please the greater crowd, then you'll do that, right? Uh, I hate to disappoint people, and I hate saying no. Uh, so I'm really good at, essentially, I end up promising the moon, and in the end, I, I'm really good at disappointing people. And I could tell stories, or I could just leave it to Georgia to tell you stories after service. Um, or the kids. The kids have experienced it surely, too. And, and frankly, many of you could tell stories about me by now. I've sure let enough of you down. So I hand out yeses, kind of like candy at a parade, only to discover that there aren't enough hours in the day to back them up with action. And this is part of why I failed as a politician. Because when you're running for office, it's largely a process of making promises. And you can either keep all the promises, or you can sell your, sell your soul in the process and your family, or you can just avoid making promises and fail to get elected. I managed to do both. Uh, so Georgia made me say no to politics so I could say yes to her and the kids a little more often. But as a natural people pleaser, it kind of feels like Jesus is picking on me here because it seems like all my good intentions in the process feel very unappreciated by Jesus in this passage. I get no credit for meaning well when I promised those things. So this particular passage, I think it is directed, in, at least to some extent, at people pleasers like me, people who say yes, but in practice end up having to say no. Uh, but it also applies to the people, who I think, who say no, but in effect mean yes. And perhaps one very clear example of that would be in parenting decisions, because how many times have you told a child that no means no, only to buckle later because you felt bad about it. I have dwelled in that cave. And I think every time we wink at disobedience, we're basically showing that our no is flexible. It's flimsy. And no becomes a negotiable term. It's a gray area, really. I'm sure we could come up with many other examples. So Jesus is hitting me, at least, I think, where I'm soft. But he's not just addressing those who have a hard time keeping their word. He's also going after the, the Pharisees and scholars who, in essence, by, by legalizing the whole thing, have managed to make lying a little bit easier. Uh, the teaching is much more complex than it appears at first. Jesus knows that people are deceptive. So he's tearing this thing down to its roots. It's almost completely consistent, really, with the, the previous several sections. Uh, we learned a few weeks ago that murder begins with anger, Right? And we learned that adultery begins with lust. And we learned that divorce starts with a hard heart. And today we learn that broken promises start with promises. It's interesting how Jesus frames it. He's been talking about big stuff, you know. 
Uh, and, and here he starts with this oaths and vows, and that feels kind of heavy, but then he works it down to very small things. Jesus starts by quoting, uh, it's not a very specific scripture, it's actually a, more of a broad scriptural principle in verse 33. He says, again, you have heard that it is said, was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So that's not a specific text that I can lift from the Old Testament and give to you. Uh, it's more likely this is what was generally taught in synagogues, and it's a fair summary of several passages in the Old Testament. So if you go to Leviticus 19.12, it says, You shall not swear by, my, by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your Lord. I am the Lord. Uh, if a man vows a vow, I'm sorry, this is Numbers 30, verse 2, it says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So, again, it's not a specific scripture, but this is a fair rendering of what the Old Testament teaches and of what the Pharisees and teachers of the law would say. And ultimately, what Jesus is saying here is rooted in the Ten Commandments again. Uh, specifically, the third. Uh, to not take the Lord's name in vain. The idea being that if you swear by God's name and then fail to do what you swore, then you are running his name down and making him look bad. So Jesus says this is an ancient idea. It's nothing new. Uh, the scriptures have always taught for thousands of years that you should keep your vows. Now, I will, I think it's worth observing that oaths and vows, that kind of language, these are very heavy words to our modern ears. Uh, and I say that because we almost never take them. These are not everyday occurrences. Vows are kind of exceptional things. And it's true that the Westminster Confession actually dedicates an entire chapter to, lo to oaths and vows. And it's actually pretty long, which is weird because it seems like it rarely comes up. It's at chapter 22 of the Confession, and the section is called Of Lawful Oaths and Vows. So it is assumed right there in the confession that oaths and vows must be lawful. In other words, they have to conform to God's law. And that's good to know because it would be really bad if you were to vow something that required you to obey God by disobeying God or something like that. That would be ridiculous. We read the story in the book of Judges about how, how Jephthah uh, vowed to praise God for a military victory by sacrificing whatever walked through the door next, right? And it ends up being his young daughter and... He went through with it. That's a crazy story and a stupid vow. Most Bibles tend to label that section uh, Jephthah's foolish vow. Foolish doesn't begin to touch that, you know. If Jephthah had read the Westminster Confession, he would have known that this was not a lawful vow and that you don't murder your child to honor God. It's not real consistent. But if nothing else, the scriptures make clear that vows are very serious, and I think that's why we don't often take them. We don't do this loosely. I mean, how often do we actually take formal vows? You're looking at a pretty short list of events, right? Uh, your wedding day, so that applies to those of us who are married. Uh, when you join the church, that's a little more common. So many of you are members of this church or another. Uh, church officers take vows, yeah. There's a short list of secular occasions where it happens, uh, if you're serving on a jury or if you're serving as a witness in a courtroom. Uh, when you join the military, you have to swear a, an oath, right? Uh, even during promotions. I was away last week. My sister is a surgeon in the Air Force. She got promoted on Tuesday. 
and she had to repeat her, her oath of office and, and swear to defend the Constitution and all that stuff. So our elected officials also swear an oath, right? They also have to swear that they're going to uphold the Constitution. And that includes everyone from the President of the United States down to your local election board, those guys who collect your signatures when you go in to vote. Uh, if you've ever worked an election board, which I've done more times than I care to admit and don't enjoy doing and won't do any more because Georgia won't let me, uh, you'll know that when, when, you, when you go to work the polls, there's a box of supplies, at least in Philadelphia there was, and when you opened it up, uh, along with all the other supplies you needed to run the election, there was also a tattered copy of a Bible in there, and the idea is that you're supposed to swear in all the election officers that are sitting on the board. So we hear about oaths and vows, but we don't think of them as affecting us, certainly not in the day-to-day. -day. Uh, most of us are not elected officials, thankfully, and um, uh, we avoid jury duty, right, if we can, and um, I'd venture to say that most people don't think about their church membership vows very often, and most Americans are not church members anyway. And that means that for most civilians, marriage is about the only vow you'll ever be at risk of taking, and since the marriage rates are declining in America, even that's pretty avoidable. Some people can go their whole lives and never make an oath or a vow in a formal sense. So beyond that short list of things, we think of an oath as something kind of archaic and foreign. It's one of those weird things that guys do in, like, fantasy movies you know, with the knife to the hand and that kind of thing, you know, Conan the Barbarian, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, like that kind of stuff, like, yeah, those kind of oaths. But all the more reason, I think this is aimed at us by Jesus, because Jesus is clearly not speaking as though vows are something rare or unusual. He's not talking about just those, those you know, that, that short list. He's trying to broaden our understanding of what an oath is. And again, he's not saying that the original rule was wrong. Rather, he's saying that the heart of the law runs much deeper. Uh, throughout this sermon, he's consistently been making the law more hardcore than it already was. And it's always harder to keep than we think it is. So he says, yeah, the old timers always knew you shouldn't swear falsely, but I'm going to take this up a notch. So what does he say? But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You know, it's funny, when, when you think of it that way, it really hits home. Because again, if we think of oaths and vows as weirdly formal events, and that's basically, it's kind of how the Westminster Confession portrays it, but Jesus is talking about every run-of-the-mill swear and promise. Every time we make the most mundane of promises. And it's extremely common for people to swear by God's name explicitly. You see that all over in the culture. Uh, and hence that violates the original rules. Every time someone says, dude, I swear to God, that's a vow. And you know it's serious because truly serious vows start with dude. <laughs> But it's such a common oath that we don't even hear it anymore. People, they say it almost in jest, and if they're going to kick it up a notch, they have to add something else on top of that because they don't take God very seriously. And for the Christian, that rightly should make our ears hurt a bit. But Jesus is trying to point out that the issue isn't saying a bad word. I think we can sometimes make the mistake of feeling like God's name is something of a landmine that suddenly makes the sentence sinful. It wasn't before, right? But Jesus says, not only should you avoid swearing vows by God, 
You shouldn't swear by anything else either. In fact, you're better off not swearing at all. Don't make promises you can't keep. And the first reason he gives for this policy is that none of it is yours. In other words, you have no collateral. You can't place a bet if you don't have the chips. Now, I have often watched Phil and Pat Hansel make playful bets. That's like a Hansel thing, as some of you know. And in fact, to this day, I think I still owe Pat a sandwich. I don't think we fulfilled that, have we yet, Pat? I'm sorry. When we were new here, I got caught once. I haven't accepted a bet with Pat since. Uh, well, that one, we, we agreed that was a draw. The point is, you can't bet with something you don't have or which isn't yours. I can't put something at risk that I don't own or I have no power to give. Now, I can bet Pat a sandwich because that's one of my few life skills. I can make sandwiches. I do that. I could not bet something like a round of disc golf with Ken because he knows for a fact that I'm incapable of playing disc golf. And an oath is a little like a bet. It's not just a promise. It's a promise with teeth, right? I will do X, and if I fail, there will be consequences. So you have to put something at risk in the process of an oath. And that's Jesus' first point. You have nothing to offer. How can you swear any oath at all? Because what promise can you make? You can't swear by heaven because that belongs to God. You can't swear by the earth or anything in it because that's his too. That's where he's resting his feet. You can't swear by Jerusalem or you could extend that to the idea of the church because that's his home. There's nothing in heaven or on earth or anything in between that is legitimately your property. That's what Jesus is saying. You have nothing of value to put forward. You have literally no collateral. It's like going to the bank for a loan without a house or a car or a job. They can't just print money for you. They're not Congress. You need to have something of value to put forward as leverage. You can't bet without chips. There's a great scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles where Steve Martin doesn't have the necessary money for a hotel room, so he pays the rent with $17 and one heck of a nice watch. John Candy comes in behind him and fails to get a room because all he has is $2 and a Casio. Jesus is saying is you have less than that. $2 and a Casio is more than you have to offer. Now, you might object and say, you have something to offer, right? After all, maybe you don't own heaven and earth, but you have yourself, right? Well, Jesus says, not so fast. What does he say in verse 36? Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So Jesus' second objection to oaths is that even a personal guarantee is worthless. You can't swear by what isn't yours, but you also can't swear by something that's outside of your control, and you don't really control yourself. That means you can't even put your own hair on the line because even though it's yours, you can't control it. Your kids may turn it gray, but even that's beyond your control. You can't bet your head because you can't even control the grays. This was clearly before Just for Men hair gel had come out. But the point is not the hair color. The point is that the fact that your own life is not in your hands, ultimately. 
Edgar Allan Poe wrote a great story. It's my favorite of his called Never Bet the Devil Your Head. It's a wonderful morality play, probably the funniest he ever wrote. Uh, but the gist of it is that if you bet the devil your head, he might just take you up on it. So Jesus says you really shouldn't bet anybody anything. You're not good for the money, and you're not good for much else either. Your promises are about as valuable as a Ben Simmons NBA contract. <laughs> so why does Jesus think it's necessary to bring this up? Why well, go after the big talkers? It seems in a way, almost silly, because we went from discussing sort of obviously major, life-altering sin issues. We, we talked about murder and adultery and divorce. And here we are talking about swearing, not in the sense of using foul language, but making promises flippantly. On the face of it, that doesn't seem like that's in the same ballpark as murder and adultery, but I think there are three reasons that Jesus brings this up. The first is that all of these sins are, in fact, connected. And we've been seeing this throughout this series, right? But as Jesus expands our view of the law, we come to realize that all of the commandments are interrelated. And just as the last couple of sections correlated pretty directly to one of the commandments each time, we can see that this one is connected to at least two of them. Because it breaks the third commandment, we mentioned that earlier, because you dishonor God's name if you swear by it, but it also relates to the ninth commandment about bearing false witness. The common thread is that it all relates to how you use your words. Are your words trustworthy? And you start to realize that all the commandments are connected, because every time I break a vow, I am violating the third and ninth commandments. But the last section was about divorce, which violates wedding vows. And according to Jesus, divorce is pretty directly tied to adultery. So there's a tangled web here. No sin that you ever commit stays in a box. It overlaps into every other category and makes you a serial lawbreaker. So if I look at a girl with lustful intent, I am simultaneously breaking at least five commandments right on the face of it. I'm coveting. I'm committing adultery in my heart. I'm breaking my vows to my wife. I'm dishonoring God. I'm bringing disgrace on my parents. It's a very tangled web. And Jesus is warning us about the pervasiveness of sin. He's building a case for total depravity. He's talking very much like a Calvinist. Secondly, Jesus is correcting what would have been the typical pharisaical view of the matter, because the religious teachers in Jesus' day, they would have embraced verse 33 for sure. They would agree, vows made to God are binding. But they had a lot of carve-outs and technicalities. They kind of reduced oath-making to a formula. If you followed the right formula, it counted. There's an episode of the Three Stooges, Disorder in the Court, where Curly is being sworn in as a witness, and the guy who's saying the oath for him is saying it so quickly, and Curly can't understand it. And the judge tries to clarify, and he tells Curly, he's asking you if you swear, and Curly quickly interjects and says, no, but I know all the words. <laughs> and the Pharisees are like that. They know all the words. They've worked it out to a science. Vows were only truly binding if you swore by something really serious and did it in a certain order using a certain formula. Much like today, people will swear on progressively bigger things, right? People used to say scouts honor, and now they'll use the Lord's name in vain in, in, in the process. But then if they want to go above and beyond that, they'll say, well, you know, they'll swear by their mother's grave or by their children, right? 
The Pharisees would like that system. We need a hierarchy of what makes these things more and more serious. According to them, there was a hierarchy of vows, and Jesus actually makes a, a similar, more uh, 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 detailed critique of them in, in, later on in Matthew, in chapter 23. Uh, he, he was angry that the Pharisees would say that some vows were less binding. So they would say, well, if, if I swear by the temple, that's not a big deal, but if I swear by the gold in the temple, that's serious business. Uh, if I swear by the altar, that's not as big a deal, but if I swear by the sacrifice on the altar, that's a big deal now. These are stupid distinctions. And Jesus does not want us to make them. A vow is a vow is a vow. The reliability of your vows is not increased by what you swear by. Every vow is serious, and we are very bad at keeping them. So all it does when we swear by bigger and bigger things is that it increases our guilt when we fail. That's all it's doing. And Jesus is trying to save us the trouble. But the third reason he brings this up is, I think, because he knows that people struggle with this and that especially his people struggle with it in an unhealthy way. Now, I think everybody, it is a universal human trait, I think everybody struggles with making grand promises that they can't keep. Uh, and we do it, again, because it's easier. We Actions are hard and words are cheap. We make promises often because we have recently failed and uh, we've given somebody a reason not to trust us and so we promise to be on time or pay someone back or whatever it may be. And we're often in this position of being the boy who cried wolf. And so we resort to bigger and sometimes even more blasphemous oaths. We, we try to make our words do the heavy lifting when our actions fail. We swear because we know we're not trustworthy. But... More to the point, I think Jesus knows that good religious people are especially vulnerable to this temptation. Now, why would that be? Why would Christians make foolish vows? Well, I think it's for the same reason that Peter made vows when he promised Jesus that he would never fall away right before he denied him three times. I think we do it to make ourselves look good, and I think we partly hope that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We have an eagerness to show our devotion to God, and an eagerness to prove to God and to ourselves that we are committed. And this is where you get purity pledges. It's where you get poverty vows. It's where we get our... our Commitments to study the Bible more and pray more and to avoid porn and to avoid premarital sex and avoid angry outbursts with our children and all manner of secret superstitious promises we make to God that we're going to do some good thing or that we're going to avoid some bad thing for a certain amount of time. I think it's a common way that we as Christians try to make up for our failures and we hope that our words will make it happen. Think of this, that, that everything Jesus has been saying in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point is pretty heavy stuff. And most of us know the guilt of anger and lust and hard-heartedness, right? And the temptation for Christians is to make over-the-top pledges to God that we will do better. We 
will use grand commitments for the future to compensate for failures in the recent past. It's the same reason you would promise your wife a trip to Europe eventually because you forgot to buy her flowers on Mother's Day. Here I am blowing my own cover. I'll get you flowers. Huh? I'm sorry. <laughs> I think the reason Christians are tempted to make extravagant vows and sort of strike deals with God, even secretly in our own minds, is ultimately because we are failing to believe the gospel. We are not convinced that the cross is big enough to cover our latest infraction, and so we resort to making promises and signing purity pledges and recommitting ourselves to Christ and calling curses down on ourselves for our screw-ups, all in an effort to add to Jesus' finished work on Calvary. That's why Jesus wants his followers to hear this lesson, because he knows exactly how we respond to sin and failure in all the other categories. We try to fix ourselves and we start with solemn promises. And what's sad about this is that Christians do this because we think it's holy. We confuse trying harder with repentance. We think this is showing our godly intent to do better. John was mentioning at men's breakfast yesterday how, how people will feel bad about not praying or reading their Bible, so they make a grand commitment. I'm going to spend an hour in Scripture every day, right? And it lasts for what? Oh, a couple days at best. We think that we're doing this with the best intentions, and yet look at what Jesus says in verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This habit comes from evil? Not from a misguided mindset or a lack of wisdom or from good intentions. No, it comes from evil. He gives no benefit of the doubt. There's no charitable tone there. You could translate the Greek also as the evil one, so you could also say that this is Satan himself. In other words, your tendency to make grand promises, either to God or in his name or to yourself, that's demonic. Every time you swear an oath, you're staking God's reputation on your performance. And you will fail. And you will bring disgrace on his name. So Jesus says a simple yes or no would suffice. It's a pretty hardcore rule, because I think we make these promises sometimes instantaneously in our minds without really thinking about them. But this rule gets echoed elsewhere in the New Testament. James tells us that we should not boast about tomorrow. Always couch your plans in the language of God's will. Stop guaranteeing things. If God wills it, we will do X, Y, and Z. Or as my old boss used to say, good Lord will and in the creek don't rise. That's the godly way to make plans. Put a caveat in there. But God takes our words seriously, and there's no such thing as a minor vow. He doesn't want his followers to be big talkers. He is not a God of confusion, so why should his people be people of confusion? So we need to be careful how we communicate. We need to speak the truth. We need to be honest. And we need to keep our yeses yes and our noes no. And I found this lesson convicting and challenging personally. Most people... My people-pleasing tendencies have been in full bloom in recent weeks. 
But I think I always struggle, and I struggle as, a, as your pastor. Uh, because I feel like my, my job is to say yes to things as much as I can. And I think I'm being positive and upbeat, but I keep finding out that there's not enough of me to go around sometimes, and there aren't enough hours in the day to do everything I've committed myself to do, and I end up sinning against people. So I've been overcommitting, and this results in arguments with my wife, who finds herself working overtime to help me meet my commitments, and it sometimes results in last-minute cancellations, and I become a liar going back on my word. Sometimes we fulfill our commitments and just do it poorly, and a lot of the times after I commit to something or cancel something, I often spend a lot of time wondering how I can possibly get out of it. In other words, I have a very hard time letting my yes be yes and my no be no. What we've got here is failure to communicate, to quote another movie. And Jesus says that it comes from evil. Now Jesus says here that we should never swear at all. And we could act like the Quakers and the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we could refuse to swear oaths forevermore. But I think this is hyperbole on Jesus' part. He's not forbidding us, for instance, to take wedding vows or to serve in the military, for that matter. If that were the case, you'd have to throw out quite a bit of other scriptures. But I think he's quite serious in saying that if you want to avoid failing, you should stop trying. He's saying that you are unreliable. So the only way to avoid breaking your vows is not to make them. Breaking your vows is a serious sin, and he knows us well enough to say with absolute certainty that we will fail. You will never take a vow that you will keep perfectly. Military members will fail to follow orders perfectly. Jurors routinely fail to execute justice. Elected officials fail to uphold the Constitution. Shocking, I know. Church members fail to live up to their membership vows. Pastors and elders and deacons fail to live up to their ordination vows. Husbands and wives fail to love each other as they promised they would. We screw this up six ways from Sunday. You are not reliable and broken vows. Even promises you make to yourself, they dishonor God and they destroy trust and it can even destroy your faith. So on the face of it, the application is obvious. Do what Jesus says here. Avoid making vows whenever you can. Keep them when you must and ask for grace when you fail, but generally stick to yes and no and don't live in the gray areas. When it comes to keeping promises, Jesus wants you to know that your words have consequences, but they do not have power. There's a difference. Every broken promise starts with a promise. But as we come to a close here, I want to just say that the more important takeaway is not that Jesus wants to keep you out of trouble with vows. That's true, too. But he wants you to look at him. He is still doing what he's been doing for the last several weeks as we've been seeing. He's drawing the, the circle of the wall tighter and tighter until he's the only one left standing in it. And he wants you to notice that the only person who fits in that circle is the only person also who has the right to swear by heaven and by earth and by everything in between. Because he is the great king and the only one who can deliver. So the point is not to feel sorry for yourself. The point is to stop trying to be your own savior 
and instead look at Jesus, because he has never made an oath that he didn't keep. He is the definition of a promise keeper. He is the promise kept. You see, God made a promise way back in the beginning. You can turn back to where he talks to Abraham, and Jesus is the fulfillment. The author of Hebrews says that God swore by himself, because there wasn't anything higher he could swear by, but he made a covenant promise to his people, and Jesus is the fulfillment. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. So the good news, beloved, is that God keeps his promises, and Jesus is our proof of that. Your hope, our hope, is not in your ability to keep your vows, but in God's ability to keep his. And unlike us, his word is reliable and perfect, and his promises are always yes in Christ. And that is a good reason to be thankful this morning. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these lessons and these words that Jesus has given us. Lord, they are hard words, impossible even, as they have been throughout this Sermon on the Mount. But Lord, we are thankful again that you do not bend the rules. You make them stricter, and somehow Jesus kept them anyway. Lord, we confess that we are not people who keep our word well. We are quick to promise and slow to deliver. Our track record is pretty bad. Lord, we thank you, though, that you are faithful. That Jesus is faithful and that all things are yes in him. We thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. Help us to take comfort in that throughout the week. We ask these things in Christ's name. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings.